0: Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Splash of Cinema. I'm Pete. I'm John. And joining us today is one of our favorite guests of the podcast, the one, the only, the originator of Stanced Up (laughs) at the movies, Sam Rosevere. How you doing today, Sam? Hey, thanks for having me, fellas.
1: Always good to to chat with you about movies. I'm really excited about the slate today and honored to to be on for the big 3-0. I mean, I did not realize this was such a such an occasion and happy to celebrate it. It's great to have 30 episodes of uh, Splash Cinema and uh, just happy to be a part of it. So looking forward to chatting with you all.
0: Yeah, so we're going to get back into it. Uh, we're just going to cover some of the biggest movies that have come out in 2023. Some are going to be Oscar contenders and some are not. We're just going to say that uh, off the forefront, but they are five good movies, we all believe. So, yeah, anything else you guys want to say before we get into it? What have you been watching lately? John? I'm on that Rick and Morty season seven. <laughs> I don't know. I just think
2: that still is kind of the standard of adult animation. I'm really excited for The Curse, which I haven't seen episode one yet. Yes. Did you see it, Sam?
1: No, I have not, but I'm dying to watch it. I loved the rehearsal last year. That was like oh, yeah. my favorite TV show last year for sure. I don't know. I've been uh, – it's been a really, really good year for movies. During the summer months, I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a lull outside of Oppenheimer and Barbie, and I totally rewatched The Sopranos twice in a row and just was loving it. So that's kind of where my focus was. But I did see Killers of the Flower Moon, and maybe I'll be lucky lucky enough to be on for that episode whenever y'all get around to it. But just another masterpiece by our greatest living filmmaker. It's an unbelievable movie. So that's my recent recommendation.
0: How about you, Pete? What have you been up to lately? Uh, I don't know, man. I've just been watching a lot of uh, just like bad stuff on Netflix, really. Uh, like a lot of like true crime stuff. You know, Netflix knows how to make the true crime stuff. And it's just, it's entertaining, but it's also just like, it's so formulaic that it's, it's kind of hard to watch at times. Uh, and also going back, uh, I've been watching Michael Mann, you know, Heat. Miami Vice, mm. that sort of stuff I've been ripping that lately that's about it I'm I rediscovered I have a Hulu account so I'm sort of digging through the Hulu uh, archive so the ba- I mentioned it last time but The Bear is like really good I watched season 1 and 2 of that pretty easily and I just love restaurant culture and stuff like that so super entertaining uh yeah and I'm just like since Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out I've like started to read a lot of historical fiction Uh, So I'm really digging that stuff. I'm currently reading one called Beneath the Scarlet Sky, which is being made into a Tom Holland film, actually. Uh, I think it was the last movie he made before he he announced his brief retirement, whatever that may be. Uh, So yeah, just just that sort of stuff. Yeah, just trying to stay busy.
1: Pete, what's your Miami Vice take? What's your review?
0: I like it, man. I uh, I think Michael Mann and Jamie Foxx really have a chemistry there uh collateral is also phenomenal i loved collateral Uh, such a good movie yeah but nothing will be heat and al pacino going that's what i told you when i hooked up with you baby (laughs) or whatever it says (laughs) at the table uh just all-time al pacino and you know getting back into the Swayze catalog as well with stuff like point break and uh roadhouse 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 is so sick i love that movie sick uh so just Honestly, like, imagine how big. Sorry to tangent. How big Patrick Swayze would be if he were still alive oh. today? Like, yeah, he ruled it. He was so good. Uh, but I digress.
1: Uh, He'd be like the Rock or something. I don't know. He'd have that kind of career.
0: Would do he do WWE?
1: Well, just like in act in movies, in action movies, all the time. Like, is not a good movie one out of every ten, but is otherwise just kind of raking it in. You know. And Pete, I'll, I'll see you that Al Pacino line and I'll raise you Colin Farrell saying I'm a fiend for mojitos while on a go boat in the middle of the ocean. I mean, I just love Miami Vice. So that is an incredible Michael Mann moment, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Are you gearing up for Ferrari, Pete? Uh, A little. I, I think it'll be all right. I'm not, I don't know, like Adam Driver keeps getting roll on roll. Like, when are we going st- to, he's good in everything he does, but it's just, just like need a little break from adam driver at the moment uh he's just wow i know i i do like adam driver my son doesn't live in new york he lives in los angeles (laughs) (laughs) that's uh whatever his line is but uh yeah i don't know it's just he's just been in a lot of stuff recently and i just want to see some variety i don't know see some new up-and-comers and whatnot uh priscilla's coming out which i probably won't watch to be honest it's just not my kind of movie It seems, yeah, Sam, Sam, come on. It looks like you're nodding in agreement.
1: I just love Sofia Coppola, so I'll see whatever she makes. Okay. Um,
2: Yeah, I'd say we're in agreement there, Sam. There's some directors that you just have to watch everything they make. Also, Priscilla's gotten good reviews. Like, it's not going to be bad, so. But if it's not your
1: bag, it's not your bag. I mean, I get if you're not a big Elvis guy. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a big Elvis guy, but I did see Elvis last year. And I kind of want to know what the other... Kind of side of that story would be because it was kind of glossed over in that movie. Yeah. No, yeah. That's Their fair. whole relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, Speaking of Colin Farrell, The Beguiled. Oh, oh great movie. <laughs> this is good podcasting. We're just naming movies now.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, see, like, no one can relate to this. That's not like an absolute <laughs> cinephile. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But I digress. So uh, I say we get right into it. So we're going to start today with the hidden gem of the week. Uh, again, all these movies came out in 2023, uh, so if you're looking for something to watch this year, uh, go see these movies. They're pretty much available on most streaming services. If not, they're on VOD already. So we're going to start off with 2023's BlackBerry. It's directed by Canadian filmmaker Matt Johnson, and the plot reads, two mismatched entrepreneurs, egghead innovator Mike Lazaridis and cutthroat business name, Jim silly as they allude to in the movie, it's uh, Jim Balsley joined forces in an endeavor that was to become a worldwide hit in little more than a decade. The story of the meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. And this stars Jay Baruchel, Glenn Howerton, who I really enjoyed. We can talk about that later. Uh, and the director, Matt Johnson, is also in it. And uh, really interesting casting in Carrie Elwes. I would not Coin him to be in this movie but it is good seeing him in this kind of role uh just because i don't know i just think of him as in princess bride sort of typecast in my mind but he is older now and uh he's doing a lot of good stuff including mission impossible uh, dead reckoning he was in which was good so what are your guys thoughts on blackberry i really enjoyed it
1: yeah really fun movie i thought I don't know. David Fincher's been on my mind a lot recently just because the killer's out. And whenever he puts out a new movie, it's hard to not revisit everything he's done or at least think about his career. And The Social Network, I feel like most people would say, is one of his signature movies. It's, it's personally, for me, a movie that I really like, but doesn't connect with me the way some of his other movies do. But obviously, it's a masterpiece. It just emotionally doesn't, doesn't. it's not one of my favorite of his movies, per se. But I do respect the heck out of the movie. And this movie is, I think, the closest thing I've seen to that. I think there have been a lot of social network wannabes over the last decade or so. I mean, we're seeing it right now with, like, Dumb Money, that new movie that's coming out. I mean, I, I'm just not interested in that. I mean, I haven't seen it, John. Maybe you have. You can tell me if that's good or not. But there's just been a lot of movies about startups, like the Rubik's Cube, I can't remember what the name of that one was, like innovations like that, and then the fall of their creators uh, since the social network. And this is the first one that I thought kind of lived up to the social network in terms of its energy, the rise and fall of it, the kind of personal questions it's asking, kind of its portrayal of business in in the 2000s and what it's like to to walk into a boardroom. I mean, that Glenn Howerton performance is definitely one of my favorite of the year. It's absolutely, it's amazing for a lot of reasons, but it's hilarious because for me, he's Dennis Reynolds from it's always sunny in Philadelphia and gives like the funniest performance of all time in that. And now he's, it's like still funny to watch him in this, but he's also the most terrifying, like monster of a human that you've ever seen in your life. But it's still funny because you it's Dennis, but you know seeing them at the same time, it doesn't make it worse. It's not distracting. It like kind of works if that makes any sense. Anyway, it's a great performance and he just really has that energy of like a 2000s businessman coming in and getting the job done by just screaming at everybody, which is maybe something we don't see as much of today. I just thought it was a great adrenaline rush of a movie. I thought there were a lot of great performances. Um, Sal Rubinek's in it, Matt, what's his last name? Matt Johnson is the director and he also gives a pretty good performance in it and Jay Baruchel I thought was really good too I thought those two lead performances between Glenn Howard and Jay Baruchel were great like yin and yang for the movie you know Baruchel's very subdued and carries a lot of the I don't know emotional weight of the movie but Glenn Harrelton's just like a wrecking ball I don't even he's like a pit bull just screaming at everyone and it's So fun to watch, but yeah, just really, really fun movie kind of underrated, uh, this year and it's on streaming somewhere. You might've mentioned it, but I just really encourage everyone to watch it because I thought it was a great time.
2: Yeah, Sam, I have a, I I totally agree with you on that, that social network kind of diatribe. I think there's been a lot of films that have tried to cover the same type of story that both of these stories are social network and Blackberry, the tech company, or you know, modern company that discovers something and then goes on this meteoric rise and has to kind of reckon with that just this year alone. I mean, air was pretty good. I would say air is like a social network type movie. I think I, the one you were talking about is Tetris. You said Rubik's cube.
1: Oh, uh, Tetris. No, that's totally what I was thinking of. You're right.
2: I saw Tetris. Not good. It's, it's classic. It's that, that fair. And there's probably like 10, 15 more examples just in the last couple of years. When I saw this, the first thing I thought was, I think one of you guys texted it to me. This feels like McKay. Like this felt like Social Network injected with The Big Short. Like it's definitely funnier than The Social Network. I was laughing audibly, you know, the first couple minutes of it, and I think that's also due to the casting. Pete, you said one of the I forget who you said didn't really fit. I felt like none of them really fit. If you look at their careers, Jay Baruchel, like. These guys are coming from comedic places like none of them have ever tackled anything this big or serious and that's what makes this like such a fun cool indie movie. I think it retained the comedy pretty well and it was just kind of funny for me because Blackberry was like right before my time so I knew about it I knew it was like a craze but I would never have been like at the age where I would have had one and I thought it captured the rise and fall really well like it wasn't too long the writing was sharp the emotions were great like the yin and yang of our two leads and the whole like penguins hockey arc like that didn't need to be in there but that made it more interesting and kind of was a great little example within the movie of how blackberry failed like some of the other distractions that got in the way
1: and that's one of the movie scenes of the year too when he
2: the nhl scene yeah
1: when he's (laughs) when he's meeting with all the nhl people and he says i'm from waterloo that is hilarious and terrifying at the same time and yeah the movie is just so brisk i agree it's not too long it's just you're in and out it's kind of an adrenaline rush and you have a great time but you also feel kind of i don't know kind of sick afterwards like i don't know kind of leaves you feeling a little bit like the wolf of wall street does in my opinion just a little empty after it all but it's a much shorter movie not that that really matters but it's a it's one you can fit in uh if you only have about an hour and a half so Pete, what's your, what's your take?
0: Yeah, I I really liked it. Again, for our listeners, this is available on Apple TV. Uh, This was an Apple original. So they keep pumping out some good stuff. Uh, Really looking forward to Napoleon. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon was one as well. And yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Felt like sort of the big short at times with the shaky cam and uh, even relating to the subject matter. It was very white collar movie. But you see these guys and it's it's sort of like the social network, like you were saying, you know, there are these ragtag group of guys who just develop this crazy software. Unlike you, John, I actually do remember using a BlackBerry. Uh, My aunt actually had one and I would just play Brick Breaker on it uh, just like religiously. Uh, So I do remember the BlackBerry and it is crazy. Like, you know, our kids will never know what that is. Right. And I like how this movie is sort of a testament to that time. Where these people did sort of want to bring in the future. And we saw it with iPhone. They used real footage of Steve Jobs in it, which I thought was interesting. And I just thought it was super entertaining. I want to see Glenn Howerton in more roles like this. After I watched this, I actually looked it up and he went to Juilliard. So he is like classically trained. He does have that background. So I definitely want to see him in more roles like this where, you know, he is funny, but. It is because he's Dennis from Always Sunny. Like you, you have to take that with you when you are watching it. Unfortunately, just from the success of the show, but I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I thought the script was tight. There weren't any really holes in the script, which oftentimes it can sort of get convoluted with all this business talk. That's really, and especially in a tech movie, like they focus too much on the tech. It really didn't. It glanced on it in like a five-minute scene, and that was about it. And there was big time gaps and. I didn't know this guy tried to buy an NHL team either, and as a fan of hockey, I I think that's funny. He wanted to bring a team to Hamilton. The only pro sports team they have are the Tiger Cats in the CFL, so not a big enough market for the NHL, I'm afraid to say. Uh, But he did try to outbid Lemieux, which I'm not a big fan of as a Penguins fan, so we'll say that. But uh, really just good movie, really surprising. There wasn't much press for it, wasn't much marketing for it, but... I enjoyed it a lot. Always a fan of a uh, subdued Jay Barishelle performance as well. So
1: I just want to echo the Steve Jobs iPhone announcement scene, which you you mentioned that it was framed interestingly, and Pete, I agree. I I loved that scene because we always see Steve Jobs, you know, and those old Apple announcement videos framed in such a there's like inspiring music in the background and you know, but what that was for these people was menace. It was completely menacing and a turn of a tide and something brand new that they didn't understand. And I just thought that was such an interesting turn on one of our most uh, famous people who have ever lived that, you know, we have such an impression of already. I just thought that was a really interesting take on it. So just wanted to echo that little point before we move on.
2: Yeah. And and on that same note with the Apple thing, I mean, of course, the personalities of these guys in the film like Howerton's character and Baruchel's character contribute to the fall of Blackberry and what makes a movie good is when you can see that and kind of make the linear connection like oh this is why Blackberry fell they did do a good job of showing that really like it doesn't matter the ethics of the CEOs and stuff it was Apple and the iPhone that led to Blackberry's downfall um, and that's really it but on that vein there were a couple great poll quotes I think like speaking of the writing, how sharp it was, that kind of showed just how important that moment in time was, the switch from BlackBerry to Apple and everything that that represented. Um, Like the one, the AT&T CEO is like, the problem with a minute is it's just a minute. And that kind of, that was so, like that, I I was floored by that, basically saying that, you know, data is everything. And since then, we've just seen data become like even more everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another quote was, I, I forget exactly how it was phrased, but at some point they're like, no one's going to know what a BlackBerry is in the future. It's just going to be the thing that preceded the iPhone. And once again, so fitting. And there's a couple others, but that, that Steve Jobs scene was really cool. And I think at that point, all of the positive energy was sucked out of the film. And that's when I started to get sick. Not that these characters were really anything to root for, but yeah, really sharp writing and also the last thing i have to say is my one major criticism of it: worst hair i've ever seen in a movie some of the worst hair i've ever seen (laughs) howerton's hair was so bad
1: (laughs) oh i thought you were gonna go bear shell there bear shell's hair
2: was terrible but the it was (laughs) i don't think howerton actually shaved his head it looked fake it had to be like a cap it doesn't look great
1: I will say, I mean, Howardson is the big showy performance that you kind of walk away from the movie thinking about, but Baruchel is great. And especially at the tail end of that movie, when things are crumbling down a little bit, I mean, he really sells that. And I guess it's just a testament to him as an actor who I've always loved, but not seriously. He's capable of kind of a more serious dark turn in a movie like this. So I don't know, kudos to him. Didn't know he was capable of this so I'm just happy to see him honestly I feel like I hadn't seen him in a movie in so long and he always makes me happy
2: yeah actually right before like literally the day before I watched Blackberry I just watched this is the end (laughs) so like completely opposing Jay Baruchel performances I don't think he's ever done anything serious I could be wrong and if it was you know no one really knew about it but I also don't think that this was supposed to be the like big great movie it was they kept the press low and I don't know, It ends up being our hidden gem, a very indie.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's been a scrappy movie came out, like you said, with very little press and I think is going to fight its way onto a bunch of end of year top 25 lists and stuff like that for critics. I mean, it's, it just has a great energy about it and it's really well made.
2: Yeah. I'm seeing some, uh, independent spirit award, nominations in the future maybe some gotham stuff for sure but i think we're done on blackberry great movie you guys should check it out next we will be covering asteroid city the newest wes anderson fair well not actually his newest because he came out with some short films lately but his newest feature film 2023 released available on peacock premium and the plot reads set in a fictitional american desert town circa 1955 the itinerary of a junior stargazer slash space cadet convention organized to bring together students and parents from across the country for fellowship and scholarly competition is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events stars jason schwartzman scarlett johansson tom hanks scarlett johansson tom hanks jeffrey wright tilda swinton brian cranston the typical i mean i could go on and on the typical wes anderson pulling every known actor in the universe together and it's directed by wes anderson and written by him and Roman Coppola, who's a, a common co-contributor. So Sam, I'll let you uh, start with the take on this one.
1: Sure. Just think this movie is wonderful. You know, Wes Anderson, every time a new Wes Anderson movie comes out, the line you hear from people on Letterboxd or Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it now, is, it's the most Wes Anderson, that Wes Anderson has ever, Wes Anderson. And it's just like, okay, it is, it's funny. Because it's always true, technically. I mean, he hears. I think he hears that criticism, and he dives even deeper into his kind of, I don't know, like miniature toy box, like replica sets that he makes, and perfectly symmetrical shots that he creates, and you know, he does have a little bit of a cutesiness to a lot of his movies. But I think that read on him is just so. I don't know. It's it detracts from how great these movies are and how much they have going for them. I mean. They're rich, rich texts, I think. And this is kind of the first movie of the ones we're talking about today that I feel like kind of touch on the theme of the year, which is kind of great directors reflecting on themselves in their career in a lot of ways. And he's certainly like reflecting on his own career. The movie, you know, is about a fake play, basically. I mean, it literally opens and, and I think it says like Asteroid City is a play that doesn't exist and it like goes into this whole construction about how a play is put together and how one spends, you know, endless hours writing. And, and and then, you know, you kind of enter into the play, the fake play itself, which is the main story. I mean, it's very complicated, but I just find this stuff kind of so endless and deep. And there's the genre trappings that you love, sci-fi, adventure, comedy. There's the storytelling complexity that is so fun to keep uncovering there's the different layers of of storytelling like I just mentioned the performances I think are wonderful especially from Jason Swartzman and Adrian Brody I also really like Maya Hawke in this movie very small role but I think she's like kind of wonderful and haven't really seen her be this good before so makes me really excited to see her in more stuff I guess the word I used in my review of this movie on Letterboxd and that I Think about whenever I think about Wes Anderson, especially late period, Wes, like the the French Dispatch, Grand Budapest, pretty much anything Grand Budapest on. I just think he's very generous. I think he's generous in the care he puts into his movies. And it makes me sad when people kind of take that for granted and just say it's just another Wes Anderson movie because these things are really hard to make. And he is so careful about every single detail, all the mise en scene he puts in there, his set decoration cinematography, the music, it's just all so precise. And beyond that, this is one of his most emotional movies. So now that I've rambled, I'll let someone else go. But I just, I want to defend him a little bit and and say how much I appreciate his work because he's a director I haven't ever really gotten the chance to speak about on a podcast before. So I love a lot of what he does.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to echo what Sam said. I I think People box Wes Anderson into this into this mold that, you know, you think every 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 one of his films is the same. And I noticed in this one and his later movies, it, it he focuses a lot on mortality, especially in this one. Uh, you know, the kids are sort of grieving over their mother who they just found out passed away. Tom Hanks has to come in, etc. I that's not blowing anything either. I just think it's really interesting that he he has movies like Grand Budapest Hotel, which are so fast moving, you know, plots moving a million miles a minute. And this one takes a step back and sort of focuses on human nature, which I really enjoyed. I want to punch every one of those kids in the face. though. every one of the kids at the camp, uh, I will say, that, yeah, the, the, where they go around and start naming like physicists and stuff. I'm like, shut up. Like it's a, I get, I mean, it fits the characters. Right. But, uh, there's just a little tedium like that. I I kind of irked me in this movie. Uh, but that is the genre of it. It is sci-fi tangent, so to say. I really liked Steve Steve Carell's performance in this, sort of like the moderator of everyone, sort of keeping everyone in check. Uh just great performances all around. That it, it's kind of like saying water's wet when you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. He brings the best out of his actors, he always has. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, I will say. That's like Tenon bombs and you know Grand Budapest are some of my favorites. Uh, but I like all this catalog. You know, I I will watch any Wes Anderson movie. Uh, for the countless vignettes, the meta elements of it, I really like that. Bryan Cranston's narration is so silky in this, so good. As well as uh, Ed Norton, really like Ed Norton, huge Ed Norton fan, one might say. And I love seeing him in his movies. Yeah, that's all I really got. Uh, some good introductions to the Wes Anderson canon, though, with uh, Tom Hanks. And like you said, Maya Hawke, I really enjoyed her in this one. Just an enjoyable watch, you know, it's Wes Anderson. It's not going to be poorly made or not entertaining. So that's why I took away from it.
2: Yeah, first of all, I, I have to just say, Sam, I forgot how awesome it is having you on the pod, man. <laughs> I just, uh, Man, that's great.
0: Facts. <laughs> that was some
2: poetry right there. Seriously. Appreciate it. I do, I do think like when everyone says this is the most Wes Anderson of Wes Anderson films, I think that commentary is like for sure overplayed at this point. Of course, he's going to play to his strengths and showcase his style. Like he likes to show off what he does so well, which is all the different parallel storylines converging into one big moment and then another big moment. There's, there seems to be, and especially of his films of late, there's always some sort of scandalous relationship going on. I really like the scandalous relationship in this movie. I think, you know, the symmetry, the, the beauty of his kind of miniature style is, is excellent. But this was totally different from his previous films in the way that I thought it got more existential. Like Pete, you said it touched on death, but this one was like maybe his deepest film. You know, the the fact that it was of a play that was going on we kind of knew from the beginning that this story was like fake in a way, but normally he does the contained storyline and then uses that to make commentary on society, like very light commentary. He, he doesn't really like ever overdo it, but in this case, he kind of like goes right at you, right in your face and really works up the existential themes, especially towards the end when, you know, the play ends or whatever. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think Adrian Brody's character really contributes to that like existential vibe. and, I'm a sucker for existential films. At this point, I think he's in a kind of an era where I'm not going to give anything less than four and a half for him, four and a half or five. I gave French Dispatch five, I gave this four and a half. I I mean, I too much going on. That's that seems like such a shallow criticism. It could feel like that at some points. But I think honestly, I need to rewatch it again. I just really enjoyed seeing this, you know, in the theater, the way it should be seen. And I thought Hanks was great. Maya Hawke is going to fit right into Wes Anderson films. I hope she does more. She's like the perfect Andersonian character. She kind of understands what he's going for. This will probably be Hanks' only Anderson film, I guess, but he was great too. He He's kind of accepted his role as America's dad in a way, and I don't think that goes away in this as much as you could be America's father figure in a Wes Anderson film. Nothing but positives here. I really can't. Say anything negative, the only negatives would be stuff that I don't really understand.
1: <laughs> I get you yeah, I just have a few more things to shout out, I guess, because again it's it's really only positives for me too. I love the opening credits of this this movie. I mean, there's a kind of an, an introduction that Brian Cranston, the narrator gives, and then it goes to these great opening credits for this song plays that is just really fun, and you're kind of riding alongside a train as it gets closer to this fake town that Wes Anderson's built. Just really cool opening credits sequence. I just feel like I named a bunch of actors that gave great performances and I didn't mention Scarlett Johansson. And I think that's because she's giving one of the trickier performances in the movie, but I think it's one of her best performances recently. I mean, there's only so much screen time and there's like 30 amazing actors in this movie that have to share that space. And so she doesn't get like too much time, um, but neither does anybody really. But I just think she's very complicated, doesn't overplay it. I was very happy to see her in something kind of refreshing. And her chemistry with Schwarzman, I thought was wonderful. And then I, I'll also shout out, like, John, I think you t- and Pete, you both touched on the mortality. Right alongside all that mortality talk from Wes is kind of this big theme of why we tell stories. And that's, I mean, so many of his movies are, quote, owed to storytelling, but even that would be. Kind of dumbing them down a little bit, I think, at what they're getting at. But kind of this idea, of why do we even tell stories, right? Why do we why do we start directing movies or writing movies or or whatever? And there's a great scene between Schwartzman and uh, Adrian Brody, where it's kind of like, do you just keep going, even though you don't understand why you're doing it? And Brody's like, yes. And I just found that kind of touching. And that's quickly followed by Margot Robbie making an appearance in the movie who just stunned me. I mean, I I think she's a very good actress. Barbie came out later in the year than Asteroid City. It had been a while since I really loved a Marco Robbie f- performance. So this was just so refreshing. And that scene is definitely on the short list for one of the best scenes of the year, her scene in uh, Asteroid City. So I think that's all I got on this one. Pete, is there anything else you, you want to add or John?
2: I mean, I will say, I don't really have any more commentary. I think I gave it all, but by uh, refreshing for... For um, Scarlett Johansson, I think you mean, i.e. not her latest stuff, which is Marvel. (laughs) So for sure, it's her like best performance lately. I mean, she's been in some other stuff, but it's good to see her out of the Marvel universe kind of and doing serious stuff again, like back to the days of Lost in Translation and all that, that fun jazz with Scarlett Johansson that made her so good. She's she's getting back on that. I mean, now she's older and more mature, right? Sure. But yeah, it's great to see her.
1: Even by that bar, right? It's a complicated performance, even by Wes Anderson movie standards. And she is a very conflicted character. And I don't know, I just found that whole, especially on rewatch. I mean, this week when I was kind of preparing to, to chat with you two, just been rewatching bits and pieces. And she's sticking out to me as like one of the more rewarding performances to
0: rewatch. Yeah, entertaining watch. And I implore all of the listeners to watch it on Peacock you will not be disappointed and uh what's the one on Netflix he has the collection it's the wonderful story of Henry Sugar I believe
1: yeah I haven't gotten around he has a bunch of uh short stories on Netflix but shame on me for not doing it because every time I put off watching a Wes Anderson movie I regret it so I have to get on it quick
2: I want to say yeah there's four of them um it's really interesting because you haven't really seen him do this before but I doubt he like cares at all about what award shows think or the Academy Awards think, but I was really incredibly disappointed that French dispatch dispatch got like no love from the Academy. And I would, I mean, maybe a writing nom for asteroid city, but once again, I think they're going to write him off. And maybe those short films are like a little middle finger to the Oscars. <laughs> that's like, Hey, you have to nominate me for something. <laughs> so we'll see. They keep
1: releasing those movies too early in the year. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I was really disappointed that French dispatch didn't get nominated. I mean, some people seem, I mean, Pete, I know everyone likes what they like, right? Royal Tenenbaums, that era of West people seem to respond to a bit more than this later period. I kind of think he just keeps getting better. And I'm, I want him to start getting recognized more by the Academy, even though all that stuff is made up fairy dust anyway, but still give my man an award.
0: No, I just, I love the French dispatch. I really enjoyed that one. Maybe a little more than asteroid city. It's just, I don't know, different stories all converging, that sort of thing. More Owen Wilson love. We don't see him in this one, surprisingly. What were you going to say, John? Sorry.
2: I mean, like his early stuff, I think what people love about it is that it's more digestible. The storylines are kind of easier to take in. But this recent track of his stuff, really Grand Budapest Hotel is right in that vein. And that one got so much love. And then the lately, like, I don't think it's fair to not honor him for... Tackling harder subjects and getting a little bit less digestible, but I mean, more rich and complex. Like, as a cinema lover, it appeals to me more, but sure, maybe when I would have been getting into movies, I would have been like, I would have written this off compared to like a Tenon Bombs or a Bottle Rocket or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think you're, I think you're spot on, John. I'm holding out for hope that for a nomination for this this year, we'll, we'll see how the rest of the release slate does. One thing I do love about him is that he doesn't pander, though. He's going to make a Wes Anderson movie. He's not going to make an Oscar movie. And if the Oscars like it, that's great. If they don't, he's just going to make another one two years from now. So,
0: Yeah. All right. So that was uh, Asteroid City. Again, you can watch that on Peacock Premium. Uh, Moving on, we are going to cover 2023's heavily awaited in pink, <laughs> it is Barbie. Uh, it is directed by Greta Gerwig and it tells the story of Barbie and Ken having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. That's like pretty spot on plot from Letterboxd. Uh, they, they usually <laughs> they are really hit or miss on their plots, uh, but that's pretty spot on. It stars Margot Robbie as the titular Barbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferreira, Kate McKinnon, Simu Liu, Will Ferrell, and my favorite performance by Michael Cera, I will say. This is an Alan-friendly podcast we have here. I'll start off, I guess. Uh, I went to the theater and watched this with some of my relatives, and it, it was good. You know, It was kind of what I expected. It was Greta Gerwig movie. I think we all know what her themes are, what she likes to tell stories about. This certainly fit the mold. It was enjoyable, though. It was entertaining. Uh, Some really good comedic bits. Uh, I think Ryan Gosling is one of the most underappreciated comedic actors of the past 10 years uh, with films like The Nice Guys, Barbie. He has some comedic moments and some of his serious stuff as well. He really shines in this. You know, Margot Robbie does her job. She plays Barbie, as I thought Barbie would be. Uh, Her name is stereotypical Barbie in this. Uh, But, you know, everyone's called Barbie. And that's what sort of lost me at times, (laughs) to be honest. But I enjoyed it. You know, it was what I expected. I wouldn't go back to the theater to see it necessarily. I would watch it on VOD with some friends because, you know, it's a quick watch. I want to say it's a little under two hours, so it's very digestible not crazy themes that are being spurted at you and preachy at times it can be preachy, but it's, it's not over the top with it. I would say Will Ferrell had some funny moments and his little henchman. I enjoyed those bits and uh, the music, you know, gotta love some Dua Lipa and mermaid John Cena was quite the surprise. I will say I was not expecting that, but I enjoyed it. Nothing special really though. Uh, What about you guys?
1: I had a great time at the movies. I did. I I don't think it's a perfect movie. I didn't think that when I walked out of the theater immediately. I, there's a lot that the movie is setting out to do. And I guess that's one of the things that surprised me about it. I kind of feel like this movie is being pulled apart every which way, trying to be a successful blockbuster, trying to be a Greta Gerwig uh, hit movie uh, that's a hit critically as well as commercially trying to be basically a commercial for Mattel and toys and a comedy and like a, just a funny comedy and also like an existential piece almost. I, I don't know. It's being pulled in a million directions. It kind of feels like it finds its way in one moment and then loses its way in the next. It feels like you're watching a different movie than you were five minutes ago at times, it kind of ties itself in knots, but also it feels very light and weightless and I laughed a ton and I think that's really as seriously as I kind of want to take this piece of art and I I just, I just had a fun time. I do think it, all of the battles it's trying to fight, maybe that's not the right term. All of the things it's trying to accomplish are kind of working against it, right? I think if it was able to kind of settle into one lane more, it would have been maybe more successful, but it's still for me, like a four out of five, I'd say, because I had a great time. And I think the two lead performances just absolutely carry. I mean, Gosling is is the one that I feel like a lot of people are talking about because he's hilarious and I'm Just Ken is like one of the songs of the year in general. And like every word out of his mouth just kind of made me laugh. And Mojo Dojo Casa House has become like a huge meme, which is, I think, very funny. But Marco Robbie gives an awesome performance and um, has to really carry and kind of be the entire movie because while ken is like very funny he's not really the movie i mean i think the movie's making some points about ken's but ken himself is not doing a lot of work he's just kind of being funny and margot robbie has to do a lot of work she has to be a doll she has to be a person she has to you know kind of go through this insane journey and i just think she she crushed it she knocked out of the park so yeah, good time at the movies. I I don't know what else what else to say. I uh, I will pass it to John.
2: Yeah, I I'm the least fan of Barbie among this group, uh, and and that's not to say I didn't like the movie. I mean, I gave it three stars. That just felt like with so much going on, that was where I would put it. Um, you can hate me for it, whatever. I just felt like being a part of the letterbox community. I always see tons of movie criticism on on every movie, and it's hard to go into something and. Not see a bunch of reviews first right and especially like when i'm gonna leave a review or try to put my take out there in this case i felt like it was shouting into a void because there was there's so much about this movie like not only content to get into but also everyone put their take in on this movie and so you know what's the point of adding another voice to the conversation but yeah, I mean, I felt like it was talking in circles. And, and like you said, Sam, it, it found itself really well. I I think the first three quarters of the movie were, were really well done. And then I think they should have just ended it. I, th- I think they got a little existential at the end. Like, I don't want to be the Barbie. I want to be the person that makes Barbies. Though the Mattel stuff was interesting. I know a lot of people, one of the negatives was that it was like giant fan service to Mattel. But We have to understand that this movie would have never been made without Mattel's sign-off. That's a pretty big IP to make a movie about. And, you know, to their credit, they allowed some kind of fun pokes at consumerism, culture, and, and capitalism. But, you know, tackling patriarchy, capitalism, the meaning of life, what is a toy, Ken's. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. And Greta Gerwig is probably the woman for the job. This was her most ambitious work yet. I think this is probably the best marketed movie i've ever seen the marketing was really well they leaned into meme culture which turned out to be wildly successful commercially can't argue with this critically there's some you could poke at it but you know it's going to get a bunch of oscar noms it deserves it deserves to be in the conversation for for a lot of things so yeah i mean anything that gets people to the movie theaters and especially something that they put a lot of effort into and is well done is great last summer was gentle minions despicable me This year it was, you know, everyone wearing pink and and all these women going and celebrating, you know, what Barbie meant to them and and what it means going forward was really cool. I went with my mom and, you know, she loved Barbies growing up and I did my part. I guess I wore a pink button down, which is the most (laughs) I'm going to do for a movie. And I was surprised at how many little girls were in the audience. I mean, I get it, but it was also a PG-13 movie, so every now and then they'd they make a swear or say, like, well, we don't have genitals, and I just kind of looked around, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. But, you know, it worked. They, they got a wide audience, and people went back, and I, I don't really have anything negative to say about the movie. It was really well made. I love Gerwig, Lady Bird, like, stuff like that. Just, wow. Like, as a movie fan, like, it, I don't think it got... It wasn't my favorite Gerwig project. It was definitely different for her, but... Cool to see her like finally getting recognized. It felt like so many people are like just coming on to Greta Gerwig. And I want to say she's been around for a while. Like it's not surprising. But anything that gets people really into, into this culture is cool. And Ryan Gosling knocked it out of the park. Margot Robbie knocked it out of the park. She's definitely the workhorse. Gosling's had some great roles. And it's kind of fun to see him lean into the comedy aspect of, of his acting portfolio. And, you know, he didn't have to try too hard. He got a lot of love, so that was cool. And, you know, Michael Sarah, of course, was the great Alan character. And every time one of those characters came up, my mom would be like, oh, I played with that one. Or, I remember when that was discontinued, and they really honored the universe well. So fan service off the charts, marketing off the charts, all the other stuff that comes with it, you know, it is what it is. That's where objectivity or subjectivity,
0: I guess, comes into play. I liked Kate McKinnon's performance in it. Cool to see her in a movie this big. You know, I'm, she, she's been one of the best people on SNL the past 10 years, you know, made that show great in its bad times. Uh, so I really enjoyed her in this. And yeah, like you said, you know, covered a lot of subjects, a lot of topics. Uh, and regardless of the quality of this movie, people were going to see it. And I think, like you mentioned, that is a testament to the marketing, uh, the brand placement. I'm sure Birkenstock's stock went through the roof i mean they're not a publicly traded company but you know they i'm sure a lot more people bought birkenstocks after this and you know mattel is i mean i don't know what other do, do any of you know what other toys mattel makes like does mattel make hot wheels Can't remember. i think so I, that might have been in the movie
2: there was some other stuff in the movie uh, it's been too long my one d- the downplay of mattel i know that they they want to stay relevant and all this stuff but they came out with a weird barbie afterwards it looked like the the Kate McKinnon Barbie and tried to sell that toy. And of all the Barbies to sell, like, what? Weird Barbie is meant to be an amalgamation of all the Barbies that were disfigured. And I'm in that camp, you know. I disfigured some of the Barbies my sister handed down to me. Because, you know, a lot of boys played with Barbies too. And, you know, a lot of girls didn't want to play with the Barbie in the conventional way. And I thought that that's what that character represented. So the fact that they then went and sold a weird Barbie, I mean, I get it make them money but come on like that that kind of irked me just a little bit
1: yeah there there is a side of this that again is one big giant commercial we can't we can't it's hard to ignore that but as giant commercials go I mean what a positive celebration of life I thought um in moments and I mean none of us on this podcast are are women are women but could only imagine I mean it, it was such a celebration of womanhood and you couldn't help but kind of feel that energy I mean I don't know about you all, but my theater was packed and just people smiling and you know there's definitely stuff for the Kens in there, but it it really is a movie for celebrating womanhood and i, I it was it made me happy it was just I don't know I was feeling that energy and uh and i'll I'll agree on the humor john it's like the exact kind of movie that you'd watch when you're a little kid, and it's like kid kind of a kid's movie or at least a movie that's appropriate for kids but then your mom or dad laugh and you don't know why they're laughing right like you're not laughing but they're cracking up it's like that exact type of humor she kind of crushed that I, i do think there's a couple like again i think this movie has its surefire weak points but there's a couple really high moments i think the i'm just ken music video is top tier there's a scene at the at a park bench where margot robbie's just kind of experiencing the real world which i thought was kind of touching and then. We haven't mentioned America Ferrara yet, and she's fantastic. I thought she she delivers uh, a monologue that is pretty ham-fisted and, and has to do a lot of the work on the movie's message. Uh, and She delivers it pretty well and, and gets through it. I was kind of emotionally touched by it, I have to be honest. So uh, that's that's a testament to her performance. And Yeah, so again, I just had a great time with this and I'm happy that it's out. I was worried that it was kind of going to be hollow, um, but I should have. Should have known Greta, Greta knows better. Although now she's like making two Chronicles of Narnia movies. Like, I guess I trust her, but I'm just okay, shocked by that news. And the fact that she signed up for not just one, but two, like,
0: what are we doing? That's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I like you said, Sam, I, I did like that America Ferrera monologue. I did like hearing people in the audience be like, yes like like there were like verbal after that monologue they were like yes like preach, <laughs> like that sort of stuff uh so i really
1: <laughs> and i have to say the audible laughter after the last line of this movie one of the hardest like credits hit and everyone's just cracking up i mean everybody lost it in my theater i mm-hmm. thought hilarious
0: last line yeah And and I, I do think, you know, the movie succeeded in its message. You know, we do live in this, in this world of social media where, you know, the paradigm of beauty and stuff, and people are trying to, you know, objectify beauty and what is beautiful. And then, you know, the whole message is, you know, everyone's beautiful. And as soapy as that sounds, you know, it is refreshing to hear, especially coming from a character like Barbie, who people associate with the stereotypical perfect person, you know? So I like how I did like how they did that, and last thing I did want to touch on is you can kind of tell Noah Bombach had his hand in the writing of this. Uh, like we mentioned, the mortality of it—it it felt very Meyerowitz stories at times. Uh, it tackled mature themes at times, especially with Ria Perlman's character and when she's brought into the void. It feels like a different movie. So you see the Bombach Gerwig collaboration there, and I I hope it continues because. Greta Gerwig can make these, you know, flashy set pieces like she did in this movie, and also have similar themes to Baumbach in her writing. But I think Noah Baumbach, that's sort of his bread and butter. Uh, and I saw it in this and some of his moments were some of my favorite moments. Granted, I don't know what exactly they were, but you know, we can we can assume. Uh, so those are some of my favorite moments, I would say.
2: Yeah. And for those of our audience that don't know, I mean, if you are just getting on the Greta Gerwig train. You have to mention Noah Baumbach in the same kind of breath. They're very, that's a huge creative collaboration in Hollywood, kind of the over the last 20, 20 plus years. And go back and watch some of both of their previous stuff. They they have hands in each other's films. I mean, almost all of them. I do think now Greta Gerwig is kind of taking her moment. And of late, she's been way more relevant than Baumbach. But yeah, for sure, he had a hand in the writing. I just want to talk about that monologue for a second. I, I don't want to leave a stone unturned here. I think that monologue kind of represents kind of everything I thought about the movie. You said ham-fisted. It was, re- it was in your face, and it got the message across. I kind of was getting the message already. I, I didn't think it needed to, to go as hard as it did because the monologue itself starts with, you know, how hard it is to... It, I mean, the monologue is about how hard it is to be a woman in society, right? But it's so many of the things that the monologue says are just kind of how hard it is to be a person in society. And I think this film tackles, when it tackles the womanhood issue and celebrates women and talks about their struggles, like that's where it does really well. But I could pull a bunch of quotes from that monologue that essentially say, you know, I can't be too flashy, but I also have to be humble about it. Like some of that stuff is what it means to be a a woman in the social media world. And I I think, you know, women get a lot of the backlash on social media for posting and stuff. I mean, they use, at least in our generation, Instagram seems to be dominated by, you know, the young women contingent. And they're the ones that are having, you know, depression issues and things because of social media. But I think that kind of is, is all of us. And definitely men have have an easier time being flashy or being, being assholes and getting away with it. But all of us kind of have to toe this line. If we want to be a respected member of society and not be hated by everyone about, you know, we want to show off, show that we're doing well in our lives, but also not come off like we're trying to brag to everyone. We want to be good parents, but we don't want to, you know, spend too much time on the kid and overdo it. Like we don't want to overparent. You don't want to, that, that whole monologue is about overdoing and underdoing things. And I think that sentiment kind of applies to humanity. And the movie starts with, like I said, the first three quarters does a really good job of talking how hard it is to be a woman in society, but then it it talks in circles in the end and gets a little complicated because then it starts talking about what it means to be a toy, what it means to be a person, what is life, and as soon as you hit that big what is life question, if you don't handle that conversation really well, I mean, you could go in a million different directions, and I, I think at a certain point, this movie did kind of take a shotgun approach to that and just shoot in a million different directions, and then... You know you're like, "What vein do I follow?" and that monologue is is one is the encapsulation of kind of how the movie went in that way, but that's all I have to say about barbie i I thought the monologue was was really well done. I love America ferreira and her previous work, like Superstore and everything, but
1: I don't know if I have much to add i, I I've only seen this one, so I haven't had the chance to rewatch it, so just kind of distilling what you just said, John letting that marinate a little bit but i i do agree cuz I, I think this movie maybe had a couple too many endings I, I i kept thinking it was about to end and then again ultimately it gets to an ending that i think is quite satisfying uh, and very funny but i do think there i was surprised at how long i thought the conclusion was taking right and and definitely the turn that it takes from that you know we've re- resolved our Micro problem now. We're moving to a much more macro problem, which is Way more existential and I just that that was again for me a little bit of a left turn But so I'll agree with you there and I think the movie is just a tad too long But again, I'd rather be in a movie That's a tad too long if it's if it's funny and having a good time and and positive and pretty well made which this was So I got no complaints and that's all I got for this one
2: All right, everyone that was barbie uh, Greta Gerwig's 2023, kind of epic, really fun. Check it out if you haven't. I'd be shocked if you haven't. Everyone's seen it at this point, but you know, maybe give it a rewatch and kind of stew on some things we talked about. Make your own opinions. I just want to say,
1: Little Women, Little Women, Hive, We Ride, just kind of feels like everyone. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Everyone's like, No, Ladybirds, Greta's best. No, now Barbie's Greta's. I'm all in on Little Women. That's yeah. a masterpiece. I just want to. I just want to say that. When I want to get that on wax before we move on i love that movie john please continue i
2: apologize <laughs> yeah yeah and you know lady bird celebration of womanhood little women might be her biggest celebration of womanhood it's without being in your face greta Grieg, she is the the it director right now for celebrating womanhood which is a, a theme that needs to be explored more so our next movie we're going to cover is David Fincher's The Killer, which just came out and is also on Netflix for your viewing entertainment, everybody. David has kind of had this collaboration with Netflix since Mindhunter, which is right along the same vein as this and most of his work. The plot reads, after a fateful near miss, an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt he insists isn't personal. Stars Michael Fassbender. Really, everyone else is supporting. I mean, you get Tilda Swinton in this, Charles Barnell, Arliss Howard, a couple other names, but this is Fastbender's toy to play with, directed by David Fincher. The original writer was Alexis Nalent, but it's also written by Andrew Kevin Walker. And yeah, like I said, it's available on Netflix. So I'll let you boys take it away.
0: Yeah, I can I can start it off. I'm a big Fincher fan. I think we all are. I can speak for that. Just the meticulous nature of, of which he operates is really enjoyable to watch. Uh, and that's definitely accentuated in The Killer. I went into it, you know, not knowing the IP that this is based off. I believe it's based off a French comic. Also, the poster kind of alludes to that. Really cool poster, I will say. Top poster. And good to see Michael Fassbender back acting. Uh, he sort of took a break there for a little. He is a professional race car driver. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, so in his off time, he's, he's you know seeking thrills and kissing Alicia Vikander, which I will always be jealous of. Uh, but uh, I digress. Uh, I really enjoyed The Killer. Super quick, super easy to follow. Very linear in a way. It doesn't hop around, doesn't mess with storylines. has a lot of the one-minded mindset, sort of, I will get to this, I will accomplish my mission. Uh, And Fassbender exudes that throughout the whole movie. Really love, you know, his burner phones, the fake passports, the espionage that goes into this movie. Uh, That's something I really enjoy in movies when they, these characters are so prepared that it's like clockwork, their operation. Uh, And I certainly got that from the killer. Really liked the music and the sound design, especially when he is listening to the Smiths. Uh, When you're, you know, when you're out of... It's showing him with the headphones. You hear it as if his headphones are just really loud, but then it's his POV and it's just blasting. Really sort of, I think, undervalued part of this movie is the sound design and movies in general. That's what I really enjoyed in this one. The shots are great. Fincher's incredibly meticulous. This is known from all his actors and interviews and collaborators he's worked with through the years. And that's what made The Killer great. I really like this one. I'll definitely need to rewatch it. It's a quick-moving movie, too, under two hours. And, yeah, just really enjoyed it.
1: I love this movie. I want to go back to the first time I was ever on this podcast. We talked about Mank, which is Fincher's last movie. Because you pick more two different movies, like, to make as a back-to-back. I mean, Mank is kind of a movie I love in spite of myself. In my head, I kind of know this is, this is kind of sloppy. This is not always, like... It's so up my alley that I know sometimes it's kind of boring, but I just love it. But it's, it's definitely his messiest movie, not his most exciting. It doesn't have all of his best performances in it. I still love that movie, though. But anyway, now we swing all the way back to this, which is the, the most, not to not to say this again, but the most David Fincher that David Fincher ever f- finchered. Like, it is just sleek, cool, dark, violent. It has a lot to say about consumerism society all these things that he always harps on he's been harping on since fight club it's like so i don't know i'm seeing a lot of people say it's kind of slight and just because it's short and it kind of flies but i think it's like it's such a good like skeleton key for him and his his whole deal as a filmmaker i mean i'm just a giant fan of his i love a certain type of fincher movie again like social network totally respect that movie love that movie i think it's really good it's not doesn't connect with me personally as much as something like this does something like girl with the dragon tattoo uh zodiac i love those depraved kind of frankly perverted david fincher movies and i mean i just don't think anyone is better at getting into this kind of darkness than he is Pete, you mentioned the sound design. I mean, that was one of the key points that I came away from. Number one, anytime you put music from the Smiths in a movie, I'm in. Like, that's one of my favorite bands. <laughs> so as soon as I heard, uh, I think it's Well I Wonder was the first song that came on. I was like, I'm just done for. Like, this is going to be a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, so I-, I love that. I love to switch of perspective. Also him kind of teasing the audience a little bit, right? You, you keep wanting to hear that music just blare. And, and kind of be super loud as he's like committing crimes. <laughs> like it would be in a Scorsese movie or, or something like that. And he keeps pulling away and teasing you at like, it's, it's just that kind of stuff where he plays with your expectations is so smart. He's just a genius about like that type of formalism. Brilliant, like distinction between these super fast, violent opening credits that play over this like borderline dubstep music uh, and then the film opens with a extended like rear window homage where he's just talking to himself and like eating mcdonald's as he's waiting to kill somebody <laughs> i just thought that was so funny that's I, I guess that's another thing i'll say is this movie just made me laugh a lot i thought it was really really funny little little jokes like him trying to sneak into a building to kill someone and He kind of sneaks in behind a delivery man and he goes, oh, thanks, man. You're a lifesaver. I mean, little things like that. He says you're a lifesaver as he's about to go murder a person. It's just so just makes me crack up. I mean, I just I think it's very funny. I think Fassbender is very funny in it. I'm trying to think I don't want to get through all my points without letting John go. But I will say I just think this is like, again, kind of a skeleton key for Fincher. I think it's about, again, him reflecting on his own career and make, again, a movie that I love, maybe not being his best. And, you know, how do you recover from that? And how can you be a perfectionist when you have people that you care about? How can you be kind of a jerk to everyone you work with when you have, you know, people, a family, and, you know, also care for them and you need to protect them, but you also are this ruthless guy once you get in the director's chair i think this is in some ways a borderline like an autobiography about how like how much of a psychopath he is as a director and so that kind of stuff i just eat up too so i'll pause there for now but i i just ate this movie up can't stop thinking about it so i'll pass it to john apologies for rambling
2: sam we love when you ramble because it often comes with great insight but yeah i mean we we talked about earlier how this might be the year of the, the director and, and the year of reflecting on on a great career. David Fincher, you know, still kind of young. He's not done. He's going to come out with more stuff. Whereas, you know, Scorsese, Ridley Scott, we're, we're seeing some of their last movies. But along that vein, I mean, this is a, almost a reflection on Fincher's career. He, he really leans into what he does best and what he's the master of in an age of, of limited series and these Netflix docudramas on serial killers and In that subject, Fincher is really the one that's still making these rich, cool stories. It's sleek, it's cold, it's meticulous, it's clean. In the way that, you know, he's showed us before with Mindhunter and Fight Club and Seven and Gone Girl. I could keep going. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Zodiac, right? He's mastered this genre already and now he's just showing off. And I think some of the criticism that's come with this film isn't fair because because it's David Fincher, and because people go in expecting this grand thing, but this is just Fincher playing to his strengths, right, and I'll take that any day, it's it's great, I think I'm going to give it a four and a half, it's a killer thriller, which is, you know, he's the guy for killer thrillers, I loved the opening credits sequence, the dubstep over the kind of cool animation, that was definitely a throwback to Seven, which I had the privilege of seeing again like a week ago. And the parallels are just insane between those two opening sequences. And, you know, it's Fassbender, who's an established great actor, one giant inner monologue. So with him at the helm, you're not going to screw that up. And, you know, we get this inner monologue throughout the film while he's doing all this cool killing stuff. And you just have to appreciate the man you you don't want to get inside his head too much, just like you don't want to with a lot of the Fincher characters. I don't know how David has not gone insane yet. Uh, <laughs> kind of what you might have been alluding to, Sam. But yeah, I mean, I watched this earlier today, so it's, it's still fresh in my mind, and I'll watch it again. It's going to be popular, I think. I think a lot of the negative criticism that's come is the early stuff is kind of going to fade as people start to appreciate it more and appreciate it what it's about. He didn't take too many risks, and sure, you could hit him for that, but he didn't need to take risks. He knew what he was doing, and I didn't need some long epic. I needed exactly what I got, which we're not getting enough good stuff in that genre these days. I mean, the era of the serial killer is, is over, so they don't really have too many stories to make. I mean, with modern like technology and all that stuff at catching killers, we're not going to get many true stories anymore about serial killers. We don't see them much in our society anymore. This was fiction, but it, it kind of handled that dynamic really well, which is that, you know, it's rare to do that these days. And Fassbender talks about that. And that's why it's even more clean and sleek and careful than a lot of Fincher's previous stuff. And yeah, I mean, I, I got all I needed from it. You can call the character one-dimensional. I think there are certainly some moments where he talks about how he might lapse and then corrects himself but that's what makes it special. I mean, the, the inner monologue really helps control the narrative well. When you're inside the killer's head, which we haven't really gotten to be inside the character, the killer's heads in a lot of Fincher's great stuff, it adds another dimension to it that we haven't really seen in a lot of killer movies before. So I loved it. Loved it.
0: Yeah, the I just want to say the ability that Fincher has to go from a movie like Zodiac where the focus is on you know, the people trying to stop this killer and then working into this where it's from the killer's vantage point is super interesting. You said, uh, Sam, earlier, the homage to Rear Window. It's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. I knew something crazy was going to happen just from Rear Window and stuff. And also Fincher's unpredictable in his stories. And I thought this one was pretty unpredictable. You do see the human humanistic side of the killer. Uh, but, you know, I, I still think he's a man of honor. Like he mentioned, uh, he wanted to be a lawyer. So, and then he learned how to pivot to the law. I don't know. I think that's a interesting way that the film could have gone. But uh, you see, at the end of the day, he is he is uh, single minded. He does care about his family, who they don't touch on a lot, which I liked. I did like that. Uh, they didn't get into that trope of you know protecting the wife or protecting loved ones, uh, because he he is sort of sort of invisible in a way. Uh, he uses various aliases, etc., And I just really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, kind of like you just touched on Pete, like thematically, again, I go back to that question, what's it like to be a David Fincher type where you're just kind of a psycho and you are such a perfectionist, everything needs to be precise, and you're a killer, um, and you want to destroy everyone, but then you also have these people that you love, and what happens when they get hurt, right? And I agree it doesn't dwindle on that, His significant other is not really a character in the movie. It's really just a plot device. It's really not what the movie is about. It's about him and being inside of the mind of that kind of a psychopath. But I think thematically, that's that's pretty interesting, especially coming from this director, who is known as such a psycho control freak. And so I just find that so interesting that he's choosing to make this. And I don't know. And so thematically, I also think has a lot to say about our modern technology life, you know, the way that tech has just kind of invaded every, every form of our life, making it so easy and boring. And, okay, well, I need to sneak into this building. I can just wait for a Postmates driver to show up you know like oh well i need a place to hide well how about an abandoned we work or i need a quick getaway car how about a lime scooter like something like that all that stuff is so funny it's like it's just so funny the way he thinks about that as you know all this stuff is making our lives easier but it's also making it kind of easier for people to get to us and invade our space and I, I thought that was really really smart and takes me all the way back to like fight club and The way he kind of has a similar commentary going on there, but this just felt like a continuation of that, which was very cool to see, and I thought even more effective than what Fight Club's doing. I had a similar one, and just kind of the idea. I saw a really funny tweet, so I can't claim this is my own take, but I saw a funny tweet about how this is about the gig economy and about how great it is to be (laughs) to be your own boss, (laughs) um, but you can never get out of it because you're your own boss. You set your own hours, but they're terrible hours, (laughs) but because you're, I don't know. I just thought that was a really funny read on the movie was just kind of like, this is what it's like to be an Uber driver (laughs) or something like that. So, but I'm sure that's, that's an element of what's going on here. So, but you know, taking all the thematic stuff out of it, if you don't want to think about any of that stuff, that's totally fine. It is just a rip roaring good time and is brisk and, and lean and really, really aggressive and just formally, he's there's no one better than this guy. Like, honestly, he's he is the closest thing I think we have to Hitchcock, just in terms of his technique, uh, blocking, and staging. No one does that better than him. I f- don't think anyone shoots movies better than him. And I think it's Eric Messerschmidt is his DP. But, like, I mean, this is just an example. But I saw John Wick four. I don't know if you guys have talked about John Wick four. I saw that earlier this year, one of my favorite movies of the year totally came out of that thinking I was not going to see a better fight scene in a movie than what I saw in John Wick 4. And then I saw this and I'm like, oh my God, these two people like fighting in a random house in Florida is like better than anything I saw in John Wick 4. And it's just due to how effectively Fincher is able to direct and edit and like stage. It's just, it's amazing. So it's just a gift to have a new movie from him and, I think it's a much richer text than people are giving it credit for. So I, I also want to say, I think my, one of my favorite movies, uh, one of my favorite scenes from the whole year is Tilda Swinton's scene. I'm a huge fan of her. I think she gives us a lot of gravitas, breathes a little bit of life in it right when it needs it. And gives it like one of the more interesting character beats, which is she's kind of the first person that he sees. And to me, I think he's kind of like imagining another life, for himself or another approach to life like she's just so wildly different from him and I think she kind of opens his eyes a little bit and I don't know I was, I was pretty moved by that scene and have been kind of re-watching it before this conversation just to remind myself of how good it is so I think she's a wonderful actor and I'm so excited every time I see her so
0: I think she crushed it in the, in the aforementioned Asteroid City as well, uh, Tilda Swinton. Yeah. Great performance in that Just, too. Yeah. She's, yeah. she really is, she's phenomenal and her, her body of work is so diverse. Like if you would see her character in this and then say the Grand Budapest Hotel where she plays a 90 year old grandma, she's phenomenal. Like regardless. And, uh, I really enjoyed her in this. Big shout out to, uh, Charles Parnell as well. who We have seen in, uh, Top Gun. He's starting to get his wings, uh, become not just a, you know, a secondary actor. I think, I think he's moving up. Seriously. And you're shaking your head, John, but, uh, I see him getting a lot more roles, especially af- after the killer. So yeah, that's all I have to say. Arliss. Yeah. Arliss Howard as well. Very brief scene playing this, you know, very rich dude, full metal jacket. Just got to give a shout out. One of the better war movies out there. We should cover it on the pod, honestly, at some point, just because it is so good. But regardless, great movie, great sound. I I really like The Killer. Really enjoyed it. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, we'll definitely do a Kubrick episode. Pete, I wasn't shaking my head at your take, by the way. I just think it was really funny you said he gets his wings. I don't know if you know, that's like the the part when like a naval aviator is done with their training and, or I guess in a military aviator, they get their wings. So they get to put the wings on the uniform and then they're like, and after right after you mentioned the Top Gun thing. So I thought that was funny. Yeah, I did not. No pun intended. Phyllis. Oh, it's absolutely a fun, really good pun. <laughs> I liked it. I wasn't I, I, I agree with your analysis. He was great. And I don't, I don't have much to say. I think you guys kind of covered it. I think collectively we covered it. I just really liked that the story was it was so quick and efficient and the, the settings were great. I think they explained kind of why each setting was cool and relevant for a killer. And then also, you know, he's so clean and meticulous and and it's clear from the beginning that he takes time with his kills and, you know, they're weeks-long endeavors. He explained that a lot of work goes into it. I think he said something like 10,000 hours. But then we get to see in a span of two, three days, him probably do the entire body of work that he'd done his entire career. And that's what makes a movie, right? And that's why it's so short. And and somehow he still manages to retain his style throughout it all, even though he's on this kind of fast-paced... I need to finish this type job, which is different than his normal personality. And and he confronts that. And that's, what's cool.
1: And I think another, another funny thing about the movie is can make the argument. He's not actually a very good hitman. I mean, the, the movie starts with a, it's literally in the description of the movie. It starts with a failed hit. Right. And the rest of the movie is him kind of dealing with the consequences of that. But like, I don't know, he, nothing really go. he sets up all these meticulous plans and nothing really ever goes quite how he expects it to. Or at least there are a few instances where things kind of don't go quite as he expects it to. I just, again, I wonder what that means for Fincher personally, if he kind of feels like no matter how much of a perfectionist I am, I still find something wrong with my movies. I, people still don't like my movies, you know, something like that. I just, all these meta textual things that I, I've, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I just think Venture's too smart to not see a little bit of that, to not have heard a little bit of that noise and subconsciously, at least maybe consciously put this into that work a little bit too. So I just thought that was kind of funny to view it through that lens. So
2: Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like He he mentions from the beginning and is very like adamant about the fact that he doesn't want to get to know these people and that's his job as a hitman. And of course, you know, the failed hit in the beginning, like he doesn't take the time to get to know. But then everyone else he goes after the rest of the movie, it's like he's there and he could do it. And then he always gives them like five, ten minutes to talk so he can get to know them. It's interesting, right? Um, but that adds a, a great layer of depth that I do think could be extracted in some sort of commentary on Fincher's career. Who
0: knows, man? <laughs> yeah, so and anything anyone else has to say about the killer? Yeah, just great movie. I'm really surprised it went to VOD this soon because it is a good movie that I think would be great in theaters. And I think uh, I'll need to go to a theater at some point and watch it. Uh, so we're going to move on to The Granddaddy of Them All, the most heavily awaited movie of 2023 so far. If you are a fan of this podcast or you've listened to this podcast, then you know that the last time us three were on, or one of the last times, we did a Christopher Nolan Ranked. So we do know these movies, people, uh, and I'm sure we all freaked out at the theater. It was phenomenal. It was 2023's Oppenheimer, uh, directed by Sir Christopher Nolan. Uh, It tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer's role in the development of the atomic bomb during World War II. Uh, The names go on of who stars in this. I have seen this three times, so I will wait to talk about it.
2: All right, I, I can start, I guess. Sam gave me the nod, or at least I think Sam gave me the nod. Oppy, man fucking awesome movie my favorite movie of the year i'm calling it now best picture winner i think i called it as soon as i saw it i think it's gonna get best picture and best actor and i haven't i mean wow it's been a great year for movies really but i haven't seen anything that has supplanted this this is one of nolan's best he's so ambitious with it killian murphy f- seizes his moment as he was meant to um, and he's, you know, one of the most humble kind of hideaway guys you'll ever find in the industry. And that's kind of what Oppenheimer was as a, as a man anyway. Like, he, of course, he has an ego to him. But, you know, he, he was a rather humble nuclear physicist that was really interested, in the phys- really interested in the physics and the science of it all. And, of course, it, it ended up in these otherworldly consequences when things got out of his hands um, as they tend to do. And, you know, that's, it's beautiful. I, I, I'm just gushing as I try to talk about it. My first review, I couldn't even give like great analysis on it. I just said when Nicole Kidman says sound that I can feel in the AMC ad, like that's what this movie means. The sound design it was amazing. Ludwig Goranson. I mean, I know Hans Zimmer and, um, Nolan had a great relationship and had the split, but this pairing is working just as well between Goranson and uh, uh, Nolan. I think the, uh, the score should also win best score. I, I forget what the song is, but it's like...
0: Uh, can you hear the music? Can you hear the music, right? Kenneth Branagh just drops that line, and then it just excels.
1: Algebra is like sheet music.
0: Yeah. It... Algebra is <laughs> like
1: sheet music. The problem isn't, can you read the music? It's, can you hear it? Can you hear the music? Incredible. Doing doing the worst accent of all time,
0: but it works. Yeah, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of memes uh, where it's that gunna writing and it's just flames, and it's just like that score over it. Uh, another heavily meme movie, but we'll get to that later. Sorry, to cut you off, John.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love it. the The callbacks though to that that musical theme, the da da. I love that shit. And it's just like it's about a nuclear bomb, right? You gotta have the most loud fucking in your face soundtrack but also beautiful and haunting, which, you know, a lot of this movie is, there's some great scenes that I really think might even be underappreciated. I know this movie's gotten love, but the, the scene when he's in the auditorium and everyone's clapping for him after the bomb is dropped and, and their faces start to melt and you see what it would be like if the narrative just quickly flipped and the U S was on the receiving end of that. Um, and he just looks around and, he's in his head and as he is throughout the movie and he walks out and, you know, the sky is falling. But meanwhile, he's this celebrity on top of the earth. And then, you know, that's probably the movie's long. It it doesn't feel that long. That was probably the halfway point of the movie. (laughs) And there was still a whole nother movie within the movie of, you know, Robert Downey Jr. And and the political fallback of the Oppenheimer thing, which no one really talks about. Um, I didn't know the story that well. And that whole kind of battle Oppenheimer does I mean it grapples with the consequences of what's going on a little bit throughout the beginning the first half of the movie but really they're just like focused and driven and and what they needed to do I guess what they were supposed to do for the project any criticism was quickly dismissed but then you get to unpack it for an hour and a half after the bomb is dropped or so and you know Einstein and Oppenheimer have a great conversation and The Every single scientist, I think, was really well cast and did a good job. Everyone knew what was expected of them. Just really good casting, really good writing. Technically-wise, this might be Nolan's best film, because there were so many technical aspects that were just perfected. And then existential, thematic-wise, I mean, it was right along the same vein. I, I really loved it. And yeah, you know, meme culture, too. It leaned into it, and I think Barbie helped maybe get Oppenheimer a couple more views, or vice versa, but kind of a really interesting pairing in our culture's history that I'm never going to forget. I want to hear what you guys have to say. I'm really excited. I've been waiting for this for months.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I've been waiting to talk about this with you two for a while too. Yeah, I guess real quick before I dig into the movie, I think one of the most encouraging things in like our culture this year was the fact that Barbie and Oppenheimer like weren't pitted against each other, but that they were like, no, see both. I don't know. It just would have been so easy for them to be like kind of against each other and the fact that everyone was like no dude barbenheimer it's a thing we're doing both of them that is just so heartwarming to me like i just love that anyway that's a tangent but yeah we did our we did our nolan ranked i feel like i love dunkirk really like the street prestige i think this is nolan's best and i don't think it's close I, i don't think it's particularly close at all and it's it's even better because it's so him. It is like, it is so Nolan. He's got all of his cross-cutting, complicated, you know, formalism that he's doing where he's switching back from black and white. I mean, that's like back to Memento, he was doing that, right? And big, gouty, like, figure that he's trying to, I mean, he literally calls him the most important man who's ever lived. It makes a pretty good case that that's true, but he loves tackling big things like that. I mean, what could be bigger than something that, changed the world forever, truly. I mean, you can't say that about a lot of stuff. So, I mean, I, it's it's so him, and it could have gone so wrong, I think, you know, and if he didn't handle some of these things the way he he did. But I think it's amazing. I, I love this movie and was stunned in the theater. And what I think I appreciated about it most was that it stunned me. When, when it ended, I didn't just get up from my seat. Right, I kind of had to sit in my seat for a little bit and like let my heart rate go down a little bit, you know. And um, it doesn't leave you with a good feeling. A lot of Nolan movies, I think, kind of leave you with the adrenaline rush of okay, the Batman is speeding off into the night, or the top spinning at the end of Inception, right? These these big moments where you want to watch the movie again immediately. This is like, I mean, it's an amazing movie, but it kind of leaves you feeling a little frightened and uh, A Little Dead Inside, and What Have We Done, that kind of thing. It's rare for a movie to kind of earn that and not do it cheaply, and I thought it did. I, I thought it completely earned that feeling. I mean, there's a couple different ways to attack this movie. It's such a gigantic thing. I think the way he captured him is a good place to start. Um, I mean, this was a real person who lived, and fascinating person I have not read American Prometheus so I, I can't claim to know as much about him as others do but I the, the kind of the point I got from him was what happens when a person who's absolutely brilliant doesn't really know what they believe right and just wants to accomplish something great right I mean he he accomplishes one of the greatest achievements in scientific history you know human history whatever you want to call it this guy doesn't really know what he thinks about anything. It's it's not even that he's too smart. It's almost like he, the world is too big for even him, right? And he he can't quite make a decision on anything. He can't decide if he's a, if he's a communist. You know, he 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 can't pick one cause that he supports. He kind of makes decisions and then regrets them, right? Both micro and macro. Uh, he can't really commit to one person, and so he, I mean he's just kind of a debutant. I, I found that very interesting. I never knew that he was so complicated. I thought this was kind of going to be a great man movie. And it's way more than that. It's a very, very complicated man. Nolan, I think sometimes can get a little more, a little overly simplistic in the way he paints his characters. And this was not that at all. I mean, I just thought it was so rich and the the side characters too, I just thought were incredible. And then you get into the technique, which he's just never been better. I mean, the stuff he pulls off here, that's all analog. The bomb going off is like amazing. And I'll never forget seeing that for the first time, but just as amazing are scenes where it's a hearing and it's six people in a room having a conversation. It's just as exciting, just as scary. All of his like over the top music and editing tricks that he's doing work and don't feel too overwhelming. I mean, they overwhelm you in a good way. Right. But I do think it's right now it's up there it's either this or a couple in killers of the flower moon for the scene of the year, which is that auditorium scene that you mentioned, John. And I've never, I don't think Nolan has ever made anything that good or that smart or terrifying. I mean, that is nightmarish and did not expect him to take that kind of stance with this movie where I think he has some opinions on if the bomb was a good thing. Right. And just to throw another wrinkle in why I think that scene is so good. The girl whose face is kind of melting and and peeling off in that scene, that's his daughter. That's his real life daughter. I think her name's Flora, but he cast her, right? I mean, that's such a personal touch to put in that scene. It's kind of, it's kind of insane, but I do think that is the scene of the year. I mean, I've never been so scared in a movie theater than when the kind of sound cuts out and, you kind of realize what he's about to do. And, and maybe just as scary as the scene that directly precedes it, which is the bomb has just gone, gone off and Oppenheimer said like next day, he's just been celebrated. They've been celebrating all night and quietly, you just kind of see two trucks go away and Oppenheimer's just kind of like, Oh, that's it. Now they're, I guess they're going to use it. And it's very like, it that left me feeling very hollow and sad and, that immediate switch from the, the bomb going off. I agree. I think it's half or maybe two thirds in the movie. You still have at least an hour left to kind of sit with that. And it's a good reflection of what his life was like. I mean, I think he accomplished that. And then the rest of his life was just kind of dealing with what that meant. And, and the long kind of downfall, not downfall, but fallout from that. Right. Okay. Pete, I've, I've talked long enough. It's just a it's a it's such a big movie. It's hard not to ramble on this one. I'll let you go.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I think I can say that it is a top five movie. I don't know if it cracks, you know, the Letterbox Four favorites. It's between this and LaHane at the at the moment. If you haven't seen LaHane, fantastic movie. So anyways, I had seen this three times. Uh, first time I went to see it in IMAX, I, I just had to. wasn't 40mm IMAX. Is that what 40 or 70mm, right? 70. 70? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. I then saw Lehane in 40mm. That's what I was going to say. Uh, at, uh, at the same theater that I saw Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer on a normal screen is fantastic, but it, it, it will come back to IMAX theaters. I highly recommend it. Just, it's a four dimensional experience and just everything about this movie is, is near perfection for me. I might want to call it perfection. I think this is one of the better movies of the past 20 years, I would say. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's a hot take saying that. This is miles above uh, Nolan's other work. You know, people are very hit or miss about Interstellar. Those same parties are loving Oppenheimer. I mean, this is a, this is a movie that Nolan fans will love. It has all the elements of, of his previous films, but this time he's he's not messing with time. He's just telling a straight biography, and I think that is beautiful. Uh, I think every film, great filmmaker, needs to make a biopic. But this, in terms of biopics, I don't know how you're going to top this. I know I'm just keep saying and praising this movie, but it is that good for our listeners who have not seen it. Just the music is phenomenal. Every, there's so many parallels in this to nuclear reactions, whether it's the movie picking up, the crew growing, everything in this movie is growing, and then suddenly there's one long fallout. Uh, and I think Robert Downey Jr. illustrates a fantastic, complex character in this, uh, getting a like Scarlett Johansson, getting away from the Marvel trope. So the list goes on and on, and I just want to hear some more praise for this movie from you guys, because it, it, it was truly one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. I will say that for a fact.
1: Yeah, Pete, I saw this in, uh, so I saw this twice in theaters and the first time I saw it in just straight 35 millimeter because, I mean, let's just say this, you couldn't get a seat unless you were booking. I mean, I haven't had anything like this in the <laughs> John, John points. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't had anything like this in the past few years where you, I mean, since since maybe like the Avengers, Infinity War and Endgame, where you they were selling out, right? I mean, Barbie did the same thing. But I could only get in, I wanted to see it as soon as I could. I could only get in to a 35 millimeter screening, which was awesome. Colors were amazing. But then I was like, okay, I kind of got to see this in IMAX now. So then I went back like two days later and and, uh, watched it in IMAX. So I kind of got both just like differently, not film, but on IMAX and then just film, but not IMAX. I mean, there's not a bad way to see the movie. I think IMAX is crazy though. So yeah, I, I... rdj man i mean i think he's gonna get an oscar for this i think he i think strauss is is such a good character real life person i don't know what to call it but it's a, it's a good thing for him i mean he's it's so good to, again like you said peter it's so good to see him in a real movie again a real film where he's going for it and he's not just being robert Downey jr he's being someone different it's kind of scary and kind of pathetic but it, we're living in a great time right now where like Oppenheimer just got on VOD. And so all the clips are going around Twitter again. And i have just seen so many RDJ clips and it just fires me up because he's so good. And I just love that guy uh, when he's when he's in good stuff. But yeah, I agree. I think another reason why I love this for Nolan is he's getting weird with it, man. Like he's he's doing some really odd stuff where. Number one, I think a really underrated part of the movie, just because there's so much noise later and the back hours, so memorable, just because of kind of the dread you feel. The opening 20 minutes, I think, are beautiful. Where he's kind of in school, he says, do you hear the music? And then that music starts. I think that's a beautiful sequence where not only is he studying theoretical physics and in the lab and stuff like that, but he's looking at Picassos, right? He's listening to music, right? He Like, this kind of art, there's a art to his science too he's reading like manifestos and stuff like that like he's i just never would have thought we would have gotten that in that movie and maybe a different director wouldn't have paid that type of attention to him because he's a scientist and he's also making really really bizarre choices that i love like his famous quote i i am become death destroyer of worlds is used in a context that i did not see coming which is like while he's making love with Florence Pugh, his mistress, like what that is, did that happen? Like, I I don't know what kind of a choice is that, but then I love it. Right. Number one, it's like, okay, Nolan is actually doing something kind of freaky, which I respect. And number two, right. He's kind of framing his whole thing around. Okay. This is entwined with sex and power and you know who this guy is personally, right? In terms of his his own values as a man and the accomplishment has everything to do with everything that happened in his life. Right. And, you know, this stuff also just has signature kind of Nolan esque moments where, you know, I don't know, maybe my, my favorite quick little shot in the movie is when unfortunately his mistress, Jean, Jean Tatlock died under mysterious circumstances. This is all public information, but we never quite knew how she died. It was reported suicide but there's a quick shot in the movie where you can, you know, he's imagining kind of her dying. And one is her just kind of getting in a bathtub where you feel like she's going to commit suicide. And the other one is where someone is killing her. There's a glove on the back of her head. And the fact that Nolan is just kind of playing with that theory a little bit, I thought I found that shocking and like really surprising for him. So it's, it's like one of the more interesting mysteries of the movie is how she died. And, you know, it's, I kind of wish Florence Pugh had more to do in the movie because I think she was pretty interesting when she was on screen. She's just get a lot of time. But so I think Emily Blunt's great. I mean, all the supporting actors are great. David Krumholtz maybe gives my favorite performance. Like that guy is just so calming and I just want someone to like hand me an orange, right, whenever I'm going through like a traumatic event. I don't know. Are you guys big Krumholtz fan? I did like yeah oh yeah i realized how much stuff he was in afterwards right like Mm -hmm. he was an elf or not elf he was in the santa claus now he's in oppenheimer like it's bizarre but i don't know i just wanted to shout out that performance because i think it's it's kind of wonderful and warm and is almost like an audience conduit and he kind of he's like really nice to him but he's also kind of like what are you thinking here Oppy? like what are you doing what are you getting yourself into (laughs) right so i don't know that that's I'll kind of wrap up there. Cause I'm sure you two have more to say on this.
0: Yeah, no, just it, it, in terms of, you know, the maturation of an actor and their career, this is, this could be a defining moment for some of these people like David Krumholtz, like Josh Hartnett, who, if you don't know, was this early 2000s heartthrobby leading man. And, and now he's returning in much more just mature ways, like with movies like this. And he was also in an episode of black mirror with Aaron Paul, which I I highly highly recommend it's pretty good. so just stuff like that, just you know, if anyone wanted to be in this movie, like Nolan would put anyone in this movie, seriously like the the what is it? the lead from Sky High is like it, it, the head of one of his departments, like just funny stuff like that. Josh Peck, Josh Peck, yeah, <laughs> Josh Peck is in this. It's crazy. I can't stop talking about the score, just the use of strings in such meticulous manners that you know, reflect the mind of these scientists. That is those, they do listen to that stuff. That stuff is in their head. Just fa- fantastic. Just so smart from Nolan and Gorenson and whatever they do next, I, I, I will buy. Like I will get on vinyl. It's so good. I don't, do you guys think this beats Tenet in terms of score? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that
1: Tenet score,
0: but this Easy. is amazing. This is incredible. Tenet was great, but yeah. Yeah, just great. Really doesn't leave a stone unturned in this. I love how there's the objective, the subjective view of Oppenheimer, and then when it shifts to the black and white, it's so serious. Different style of filmmaking as well. Uh, you don't have these quick cuts. It's very courtroom-esque. Twelve Angry Men parallels there, especially in those court scenes. So I really appreciated that. Just all around, just can't stop saying great things. So,
1: I love how Albert Einstein just appears a couple times. All great movies like this is an absolute masterpiece, but I'm a firm believer that all great movies can have weird little funny things like that in them where like a car pulls away and then Albert Einstein just like pops up. That just made me laugh in the theater, but in a good way. Like I loved it. It's just movie it's movie magic and it works. Go ahead, John. Sorry.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say the 12 Angry Men thing. I, was, I meant to shout that out earlier. I definitely saw that parallel. There's a lot of things you guys talked about that, you know, I wanted to shout out various times. I probably forgot a lot of the train of thoughts that was going on, which is okay. There's a million drains of thoughts to talk about here. Robert Downey Jr. Another, I think surefire Oscar uh, well-deserved. I I saw some interviews with him after this. I was getting shades of Pattinson talking about his twilight days when RDJ was like, they're like, so, uh, you know, have you moved on from Marvel? Like, is it good to be back in like serious movies? And he's like, he gave a little nod. He's like, Yeah, I think so. (laughs) That was a right choice for me. Um, And it was, you know. It's good to see him back as a serious actor, which, you know, he is. He's awesome. I think we mentioned this, and and if you go back to our Nolan episode, which I think was one of our best episodes, we kind of go and talk about at length how Nolan plays with, with various themes throughout each of his movies, you know, and how different things affect the mind, right? So Tenet, you know, time inversals and coming at things from two ways. And he uses symbols extensively to emphasize all those things. Inception, how, you know, you can have imaginable worlds in in a dream scenario and, you know, the top, all that stuff. Insomnia, how sleep affects the brains. Memento, short-term memory loss, right? Batman, one of the only superhero franchises we've ever seen, probably the only that really gets into antiheroes and is Batman even a hero? Dunkirk the fog of war right he every anything that can affect the mind he's managed to make a singular movie about and you know you wonder how does someone do that in a biopic and in this case it's consequence and psychological effects right and the beginning of the movie there's a little bit of that it starts with the foreshadowing but really he has that singular goal and I'm so glad we have time to dissect that and that uh, that auditorium scene is you know perfect example of him using those same themes in this movie how consequence affects the mind and really, which is the only big thing you can do with with a character of this magnitude Oppenheimer. And it's just cool to see, you know, it, it is the, it's a very classic Nolan film in that way. And I'm sure he'll find some other crazy theme that affects the mind in his next film, something else, I guess, but he has the big set pieces, the symbolism here, which I don't think we really got into is great. You know, the my favorite symbol probably throughout the film, it allows the audience to kind of follow the progress easily, is the jar of marbles, right? It's crazy how something like developing a nuclear weapon can be broken down so easily into a, plastic, or a glass jar full of marbles, right? And, you know, when it's full, everyone's happy, but they don't really understand what that means. That means it's time to drop the bomb. The The trucks driving away, what this movie really shows, which is really, I'm sure how it went, is... They developed this weapon. They put all this mind work into it. And the next thing you know, it's not your property anymore. And you have to deal with the aftermath of that and what it meant. And I, I really think, you know, in real life, the kind of exactly how the movie goes, like he became an advocate for nuclear rights and everything, which is great. Like, but it happened after he built the bomb. So you can you can kind of try to correct your past mistakes, which is one of the themes of the film, but you really can't once the jar is open once pandora's box is open it's it's open and yeah i mean i mean, I, I really like that and then you know the Downey junior is great as kind of the anti-hero it gives you a nice villain to root against and uh, c- allows the audience to come back down to earth a little bit over the last hour and and sit on these things so that way when you leave the theater as you said earlier sam like you really get a chance to kind of breathe in the magnitude of what it all means and walk away not feeling good about any of it. If they had just ended it when the bomb drops and the trucks drive away and then Oppenheimer maybe has his conversation with the president and then it goes on to say like in the after credits, you know, Oppenheimer became an advocate for nuclear rights. Like that would have been a super safe way of ending the movie. But, you know, Nolan at that at this point is so confident in his abilities and he's so ambitious and it's so awesome to see just raw ambition and magnitude of this movie and it backs up like it ended up being everything i hoped for and more and that's that's just righteous man that's awesome
1: yeah i i just love the way he's able to make clearly he again clearly he has opinions clearly he has a stance on what Oppenheimer did and what it meant and i love that he he puts it out there but he he does it with such venom um which i feel like you don't kind of see from him but he, at the, same, at the same time, he doesn't just, he does say it, right? I mean, I'm thinking about that monologue in Barbie. I mean, he says, he kind of tells you what the movie's about. I think the ending is an example of that. I think there's a couple scenes that tell you, but he does it in a way that's still artful and really affecting, right? Almost the bluntness of it. It's almost like, okay, well, this, this is the consequence, right? I mean, that's what makes the third hour so good is there's a lot of it where, Oppenheimer is just kind of getting stuff yelled at him in these hearings about stuff that he did. And he just kind of has to sit there and take it. I mean, the Jason Clark character, I saw a lot of people not loving his performance. I thought he was really good, really menacing, scared me in the theater. I thought like he was going to (laughs) murder Oppenheimer at one point because he was so like vicious coming across the table. But I mean, the scene that stands out to me about kind of how scary this is and i don't know what what's scarier the atomic bomb or like a meeting right? just just guys in a meeting is when they're they're clearly going to make the bomb at this point and they're having a meeting and it's about where to drop it and one of the guys i can't remember the actor is basically like we can make this decision in five minutes while i eat my sandwich and not tokyo because my wife and i vacationed there one time right like that is just pure evil absolutely one of the most evil things i've ever seen on screen in my life and really like i've never seen nolan with that much i don't know with that much casual venom again uh and i think the the scene where he meets the president is is great as well that scene really surprised me i always knew he went like i knew that that he went and saw him saw truman and said mr president and i I think I had blood on my hands, but I didn't know what else happened in their interaction. And the way, I guess it's a spoiler to say who the actor is, but the way who the guy who plays the president plays that scene delighted me. I mean, it's very startling and unnerving, but it's a great little performance that he's given there. And again, another actor that is refreshing to see in something like this good. So
2: Yeah, Gary Oldman's great. <laughs> oh, what a spoiler. Okay, well,
1: yeah, he's really good. Yeah. So I I guess I just wanted to shout out those two scenes. And I do think that ending is like a wild departure for Nolan. Like, I mean, maybe you could say the prestige memento maybe, but he doesn't make a lot of movies that make you feel sick to your stomach. And that's what I was uh, at the end of this movie. I think that third hour is just a long, you know, deliberate trod towards the inevitability of what we've done. And hey, isn't you know, isn't that kind of what we're all doing in this life at this point, ever since this event happened? So, I don't know. It really stuck with me. The first time I saw it, I was kind of like shell shocked by it. So, Pete, I know you got more on Oppie. What, what do you got?
0: Yeah, I think I, I really think I've said everything. Uh, just the the use of filming with an IMAX camera in this, though. This is the first time this has really been done, right? Am I wrong, or
1: I mean. It's been done before, but not for this long. Yeah. Yeah. Like the for runtime
0: hours? Is, Yeah. It's so yeah. expensive. I mean, you've, you've seen the, I'm sure our listeners have seen the picture of the reels for the 70 millimeter IMAX. It's just, it's taller than you. It's crazy. So that's really all I can say. The scale of this is ginormous. Everything about it is large, but then you also have those moments with Oppie at his most vulnerable, uh, a scene which really sticks out to me is when, uh, He's in the woods with his wife and I'm not going to say what happens. Cause like I think it's a plot point and I don't really want to give those away in this because I, you got to watch this movie. That's why. But anyways, so I think that's just one of the best parts of this movie. The the quiet moments as well as all the mayhem uh, really puts you in the mind of Oppenheimer. And I think if you sat someone down and put them in front of a TV or put them in a seat in a movie theater and, told him to watch this movie, they could tell you most things about this person. It is so engaging. It is a complete biography, I would say. Granted, it skips like the first you know, 20 years of his life. But then again, it works till the end and uh, at the parts where intrigue is, is most powerful. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, IMAX is great for the big moments. It's just as good for a close-up. I mean, seeing Tillion Murphy's beautiful blue eyes, <laughs> let's just say it, they're beautiful on this gigantic screen just like so close was incredible i i thought and i i, I want to give one more fun take we're talking about these directors making movies reflecting on their careers i think there's a really funny read of this movie which is you know i'm this great director clearly the most talented new director of my time and then i make the dark night and everything kind of changes and what has happened to the movie industry since the dark knight everyone's chasing the dark knight the superhero movies are controlling the mu- movie industry you know i think that's a really funny read on this movie of, is him looking on his own career and the things that that he's done i mean look i love the dark knight i just think some of the movies that has spawned not even marvel movies but like i don't know i'm thinking green lantern stuff like that i don't, I don't know <laughs> like I, I think it's a funny read on the movie that you could say he's i don't know at the very least, he sees a lot of parallels between himself and his personality and Oppenheimer's. I do think he's the ultra technician. Absolutely, like, after this, I think you can say he's at the peak of his craft. I think I've been waiting for the Nolan movie that's going to make me say, okay, he's kind of, at least at the level of, of like, a Tarantino or PTA, uh, you know, a Sofia Coppola, or like, just craft-wise, where I feel like he's at that level, and finally I feel like he's kind of put all the pieces together enough story and craft wise to kind of surpass them now. But I've never felt like he really knew what he believed. He was either making genre movies or making things where it's kind of hard to tell where he maybe stands. Some of the political things about the dark Knight are kind of like just confusing. And I know that's not what really those movies are about, but I, I just feel like he's now really finding his footing and is in this not late career, but is settling into a really comfortable mode where he kind of knows where he's going. But I think he, I don't know. I just think he sees parallels between himself and J. Robert Arpenheimer. I don't know. Maybe, am I reading in too much into this, John? John's laughing at me. I don't know. I'm,
2: I'm just smiling. I love this man. No, I, I could see that for sure. I think we can take as much as we want about how this is a reflection on Nolan's career. I'm excited to see, you know, I'm not excited to see when he's like done, like at the end of his career, because he isn't yet. But when he is... I'm excited to see how he reflects on his career in in cinema. I think this is, you know, him kind of acknowledging his fame and everything um in a in a way, but also I really think this is him trying to tell a story and and maybe being a little more assertive politically than he's ever been before and that's cool.
1: Totally agree. I that's what impressed me the most was just the swings that he was willing to take, the statements he was willing to make. Just how confident he was. Right. I mean it's it's such a confident movie. It's so ballsy the things that he pulled off. Like he literally just like detonated a bomb. He did that. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because he crashed an airplane in this last one. But by the way, like, give me Tenet two. Like, I don't know. Now he can just everyone saw this movie made so much money, now just give me like three more tenet movies. The return of the protagonist. Pete, you got anything else on this one?
0: No, that's so true. Like give me give me another tenant. i need it i need it if you know if this is his last movie knock on wood you know i don't does he already have one slated
2: oh hopefully not man yeah. i
0: don't
1: think it is but i really like, don't like what does he even do after this that's my <laughs> yeah, idea kinda, yeah. i, I kind of walked i walked out of this movie and i was like you can't really get bigger than this uh, no
2: I hope he's like Conor McGregor and doesn't know when to leave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if yeah, we just,
0: I, if we just got Nolan's scripts, you know, maybe he just say, but he carries film. He notably carries film around in his pocket. I don't think he's going to stop filmmaking, but even if, you know, he does go on to just write, I'd be, I'd be fine with that. I think this catalog is, is incredibly impressive and and is a testament to the level of level of filmmaker we're talking about here. I think it's like him, Scorsese, Coppola, Polanski as 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 bad as he may be like those that caliber is what Christopher Nolan is operating on and I I I think if he makes another movie it's gonna be just as good as his other ones but I I I think this might be the best movie he ever makes I know this took forever and it it is well received but you know it's a testament to how good this movie is and I don't think anything in his catalog is better than this I don't think anything will be I know that's a hot take but you guys can
1: I I agree with you. I don't unless he surprises us with his next one, which again, like I don't even know where you go from this. This is like insane how big this was. But nothing he's ever made has affected me so much emotionally. I know Interstellar, very emotional movie for a lot of people, but there's emotional moments in that for me. But I was shell-shocked by this movie. And that was the thing I walked away from was Nolan's really never made me feel this much anymore. He's always been an amazing technician, but he's never made me have the emotions that I had while I was in the theater, um, like this. So if he keeps going, I certainly think he can be at that level Pete of those, those fellas you mentioned. It is interesting with both him and Scorsese this year. I have an opinion on, on these two movies and they're both insane epics and gigantic. I don't think killers of the flower moon will win best picture, but it will be interesting if Oppenheimer does win best picture. I think it, it should. You know, it's kind of a passing of a torch. It's, it, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting that they both came out this year. So,
2: and he, you know, he had Safti in there, who's like kind of, yeah, uh, Scorsese's little apprentice. That's <laughs> a good performance. <laughs> One of them by him too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, great movie. Do you boys have anything else? We really, we really did it today. This was awesome. I'm glad we covered these movies. All, all must watches. I really think, you know, talk about great years in movies, 2023 is is approaching 2007 level, and there's still more to come. That is a, that's a
0: crazy, I don't think that's a crazy take, actually, now that I think of it. I don't think so. We'll see. Yeah, I I need to watch Killers of the Flyer Moon, because like, 2007, when you say that, is, you know, there will be blood, no country for old men, like some serious heat. But, uh...
2: Yeah, I was just about to say, unlike 2007, though, I think... We have one that's kind of leagues away, whereas you know, "No Country for Old Men." There will be blood. That's an epic battle.
1: See, for me, for me, I've got two right now
0: that are up. Uh, Well, he's seen, he's seen one that I don't think we've seen. So, for me, I've got. Are you talking about Killers? Yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, no, no, no. I've seen,
2: I've seen. Oh, okay. I I, I think I gave it four and a half. I I loved it. I, I just think Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer's perfection. I could pick apart Killers of the Flower Moon a little bit, just a little bit. No, I'm not.
1: I'm not arguing with you, John. I'm. I'm just saying, me personally, it does feel like that. There will be blood. No country for a woman, kind of thing, right? I just literally, like to this day, can't decide. You know, and they are the one and two for me. Killer's really close. I really love that movie. I keep thinking about that. It's movie. It's great. <laughs> um, it's great. But I will say, like, we've got a lot of the year left. I I just want to shout out Jonathan Glazer, who is. Like one of my favorite movie makers doesn't make a lot of movies, but like made under the skin and birth and sexy beast, all of which are amazing, especially under the skin. I think is, I think I said under the skin was like the second best movie of the last decade when I made my letterbox list for that, but he's got a movie called the zone of interest coming out before the end of the year. I think that could sneak into the best picture conversation, depending on if people receive it. Okay.
2: Alexander Payne, Alexander Alexander Payne, Payne, the the holdovers
1: people like that. I mean, I haven't seen Priscilla. I do think that it's going to be really worth watching. That should be Sophia. up for some
0: awards. Uh, Saltburn from Emerald Fennel as well. Saltburn. Uh, Saltburn. Yeah, that has a big cast. Willy Wonka. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> me? I, think, I think the clip dropped today. We're recording this on the 13th, listeners, of Timothy Chalamet singing uh, Pure Imagination. And it's just bad. Like, it is just bad.
2: I'm disappointed because
0: all right maybe I had a weird kind of expectation
2: that Timothy Chalamet would only want to be in a good movie but it just looks like IP crap Willy Wonka like just garbage and you know I was hoping for some like dark take on the man that like is kind of like a child killer in a way and like has you know slaves which are the like I thought it was going to be kind of a psychological but no it's just crap. Yeah,
1: the Gene Wilder one has a couple dark moments like that when I and I kind of love that those little wrinkles in there. Uh, my hot take is that that movie's come out going to come out and it's going to have like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes because it's made by the Paddington 2 guy and apparently he only makes 99% on Rotten Tomatoes movies. I will never see it. So I probably won't see that movie. <laughs> what? Oh, Willy Wonka.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wonka. Yeah. Have you seen Paddington though? I haven't,
1: oh. but I know they're like the highest rated movies. It's, on... it's actually
0: it's actually a very good movie. It's very enjoyable. I'm sure, uh, but I'm sure. I don't think Willy Wonka. Just with the IP that he's he's dealing with here, this dude is insanely British too. He's gonna put it in downtown London and have so much London homage. Whereas you know you can contrast that to Tim Burton and it just paints a better picture like there's there's facets from both those movies that i would take away but i don't think any like i think both of those are gonna be better than this one
1: like for, i will say hugh grant oompa loompa is cursed that is just a cursed image yeah that
0: that should not be a thing uh yeah i'm trying to think of what i it's like aquaman 2 comes out i know we don't really watch those but i mean there's ferrari yaya abdul-mateen villain role which uh, i i love i love his work watchman that's what I go back to. But
1: <laughs> the, I mean, the, the elephant in the room is that due to the strike, which needed to happen, and it's, it seems like that's over now, and like everyone got what they needed and they should, they deserved a ton. We didn't get Dune Part Two, which I think that would have taken this movie year into the stratosphere. Right, if we would have gotten that movie along with all of these other movies, I mean, we're talking, we are talking 2007 type year. I will at least say it's the best movie year since 2019, where we got Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit,
2: 2000, yeah, or, uh, 1917, yeah, yeah, that was a that great year. That was a year. great year. That's what got me into movies like as hard as I am now, for sure.
1: Sure, pre-pandemic too. What a time!
2: Yeah, and then pandemic. You know, I just became a Letterbox. For- <laughs>
1: Yep. But yeah, it's gonna be a great movie year. And Maestro too, Bradley Cooper.
0: I think that movie's gonna be good. Oh, good take. There's what's the other one that's coming out? There's another there's another big one.
2: Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I've yeah. actually
0: gotten pretty good yeah. reviews, but I don't know. i just it just Yeah, there's 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 another one I think. But uh anyways, it's gonna be a great year for movies, and I think there's definitely gonna be some sleepers that we're not talking about, and we won't get the new chicken run? The Chicken Run sequel, chicken run. that's good. Uh, so we'll see if like because I mean Oppenheimer should get all the nominations it deserves, right? But it, let's see if its June release date comes into play. I don't think it will, but I think Barbie might fall out because of that in like categories like production design. And
1: you don't think so? I think it's getting nominated. I think too many people liked it.
2: Yeah, that I mean that would be incredibly stupid for the Oscars and like any award yeah, show to fair. not you
1: need to have ryan gosling performing that song on stage during the ceremony and you need to have margot robbie doing all the red carpet events i mean it's i think it's totally an oscar movie greta gerwig will get director not she won't win it i think she'll get nominated
2: nolan should get director hopefully
1: yeah i don't know what they're gonna do i wonder if they i mean i again i don't think killers of the Flower Moon* will win i think that's a pretty tough movie to take but i think they could maybe give a scorsese director nod i don't know because like Oppenheimer is going to get a ton.
2: Oppenheimer should get 10, 10 Oscars, 11. Dune last year got like six and that yeah, wasn't on the level. Yeah. I mean, Oppenheimer should sweep the technical awards and then, you know, best actor, best supporting, best picture, best score. I mean, it's not going to win the big five, but it could win four of them. It probably won't win for writing, but we'll see. I will
1: say a movie that we have not mentioned yet, and I love, again, we're back to great podcasting, which is just saying the names of movies and saying great movie. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Banger. What a great movie, dude.
0: Yeah, we we actually, that's on the slate, uh, Splash of Cinema listeners. Uh, it will probably come out before this. We we did cover it with like Renfield, No Hard Feelings, a few other ones. Uh, that was a fun episode. It was like our first time back in a while. But yeah, like that was a phenomenal movie, right? And there's this British rap bar. I know we're tangenting crazy, but it goes Who said this mission ain't possible? Show a man how to hunt no Ethan. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. It's such a good one. So, like, I think I wrote that in my letterbox review, but that was a banger. Like, that was four and a half stars for me. But yeah, there's been some great movies already, and I think there's way more to come. Spider
2: Verse, which we'll cover.
0: Oh, yes. Like, yes. I
1: have one I'm forgetting I, I totally forgot about this Todd Haynes May December that movie's going to be really good that's going to get nominated for best picture what's it it's called yeah May December May December it's with uh Natalie Portman and uh Julianne Moore
0: Ooh, okay
1: Todd Haynes director of Carol oh Safe which is a wonderful movie uh I mean Carol's a wonderful movie. I love
0: Carol I love I love, I love, I love yeah. that movie
1: he, he's a he's a director that the academy really likes for good reason i mean he's incredible doesn't miss and i think this movie's got some really good buzz and mm-hmm. it's gonna get a nomination okay i've i've run out of movies to name
2: Sorry, <laughs> yeah i just want to say dude i mean we always say thank you but like seriously thank you it's awesome to have you on love your uh, criticism i'm glad we all got to unpack this together this is truly a moment i've been waiting for for a while it feels hard because like, you know, stuff like Oppenheimer comes out and then you, you want to unpack it immediately. But it's cool to kind of get a nice little bundle of really good movies to unpack together. And uh, yeah, thank you, man. Seriously. Yeah, as
1: I, I mean, I appreciate you having me on. It's, this is not my podcast. This is your podcast. So I, I just feel honored to, to get invited. And I will always jump at the opportunity. I have a great time chatting with you boys and glad we can make it work with our busy lives.
0: Likewise, we're all doing great and I can't wait the time. Uh, I can't wait for the time when we're all together again to discuss movies in person. I know that's only happened once, but, uh, man, that was a time. That was a great time. Uh, and I look forward to the next time. Uh, thanks again, Sam. Uh, just want to reiterate what John says. Your insight is very valued by our fans and us alike. So we really appreciate you coming on to talk about these great movies. I mean, these are all great movies, uh, that you should all see. So yeah.
1: Well, and you all always compliment my insight, but I do want to say you all have just as great insight and I always love reading your reviews and listening to the podcast. I I just want to give it back to you, give the love back to you. So I, I, I always appreciate coming on and, and chatting with you.
2: All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for whatever we do next. I'm sure we'll cover some great stuff. Signing off, Splash of Cinema. I'm John.
0: I'm Pete. I'm Sam. See you guys. Nice. 80
1: degrees.
0: Oh, shit. That's sick. Hell yeah.